1982, uh, a woman named Ann Herbert in Sausalita, California, got fed up with what she was seeing on the evening news. Every night, it seemed, the news reported on random acts of violence and senseless acts of cruelty. And so to counter this, she started a movement called the Random Acts of Kindness Movement. The purpose of this movement was to encourage people to perform random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. And back in the 1980s, you would see t-shirts and bumper stickers with that slogan. You still occasionally uh, see them today. There's a whole line of books that has come out that's, that's built upon this slogan, random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. There is no question that kindness is important. Paul commands kindness in Ephesians 4.32, which I think is kind of a summarizing verse for this whole section in Ephesians. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, even as God in Christ forgave you. That's really the verse. We'll look at this whole section, but that's really the verse I want us to focus on the most today. But you need to understand, Paul is not here commanding random acts of kindness. He is commanding consistent acts of kindness, systemic kindness. Not random acts of kindness, but habitual acts of kindness. Not sporadic kindness, but kindness as a way of life. When people look at the church, when people look at the community of God's people, they should say, those people are kind. Those people understand and practice kindness. Kindness is at least one way of summarizing the Christian life, at least one way of summarizing what Christian relationships look like. We relate to one another in and through kindness. But before we look at what Paul says in this section about kindness and the other things he mentions here, I want to point out two problems that we have with kindness today. I want to address two problems we have with kindness. One is that kindness just seems too weak. It seems too weak of a word to really capture the Christian way of life. It's too weak of a word, it seems, to capture the Christian ethic. After all, Anna Herbert's slogan about kindness was adopted by many non-Christians. And so if non-Christians can get just as into kindness as we Christians do, what is Christian about it? What is Christian about kindness? Further, I think we dilute the meaning of this word because we tend to think that kindness is synonymous with niceness. And we think, well, there's nothing distinctively Christian about being nice, and niceness seems to make very little difference in the world. So what good is it? Well, actually, I would say kindness is not niceness, and I trust that by the time we are done talking about it today, by the time we're done looking at what Paul says here about kindness, we will understand that kindness is not a form of weakness, it's a form of strength. This is not a weak word, it's actually a very strong, very powerful word. It takes a special kind of strength to show kindness in a consistent way. And that is especially true in our world, which is so full of cruelty and meanness. If you think the world was cruel and mean back in 1982, it's far more cruel and mean today. So there's no doubt that Christian kindness will really make us stand out in a culture of cruelty, a culture of brutality and bitterness like our own. There's a strength in kindness that we need to put on display. But we also need to understand that the kind of kindness that Paul is commanding here is distinctively and uniquely Christian. It is so important to see this. This is not just a virtue that we share in common with the world. 
In this part of Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians 4 and into chapter 5, Paul is giving numerous commands. You might have noticed that as Cameron was reading. It's just one command after another. It's like they come at you like machine gun fire. Just one right after another, these commands. Paul is building up a picture of the Christian life. Paul is building up a description of what the Christian community should look like. And kindness will be at the heart of that. Kindness is at the heart of the Christian life. You might say the very heartbeat of the church's life is kindness. We're to walk in step with kindness. But it's so important as we seek to build up a life of kindness, a community of kindness, it's so important to see what that building is resting on, what that building has as its foundation. Paul here is building up a a house, as it were, a description of what the Christian life is like. What is the foundation that that building rests on? You know, if you're going to go buy a house, you're going to want to get that house inspected. And one thing you will definitely want inspected is the foundation. You want to know, will this house stand? Does it have a solid foundation? Well, Paul here is seeking to build his house of the Christian life on a solid foundation. The foundation of the Christian house, of course, is Christ. It is Christ crucified and raised. Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection inaugurating a new creation and a new life. The foundation of the Christian life is always the gospel. We never build on anything else. It's not like we start building on the gospel and then switch to a different foundation at some point. No, the whole Christian life rests upon that solid foundation of the gospel. It is God's grace to us in Christ. Christ who died for us and who rose again for our salvation. That's the foundation. And everything Paul says here, all of his commands rest on that foundation. Paul's imperatives, you might say, rest upon those indicatives. The indicatives, the statements, the declarations about what Christ has accomplished, that is the foundation for all these imperatives, these commands that Paul goes on to give. The commands rest on the cross and the resurrection. Our ability to fulfill these commands rests on Christ dying and rising on our behalf. You cannot build a Christian life without that foundation of grace. Christ is the rock we build on. I want to show you this just by looking back at what's in Ephesians. You may be familiar with this letter, but whether you are or not, I think this is helpful. And I'll paraphrase here because Paul tends to talk in really long sentences. Uh, in Ephesians, especially early on. So I'll, I'll paraphrase here. But you go back to the beginning of the latter, the first chapter. Paul says, The Father chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us for adoption to the praise of His glorious grace. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. Paul gives this spectacular and awesome description of what God has done. And words like love and grace and adoption, the riches of his grace, how he has lavished grace upon us. Words like this are piled up to describe what God in Christ has done for us. He uses this incredible language to describe what God in Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Going back to before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, all the way to the present moment. This is what God has done. Later in chapter 1, he says, The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. In other words, what he's saying is the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, the same power that brought the corpse of Jesus back to life in a glorious way, that same power is now at work in you. That same power is at work in us to enable us to live in a new way. The resurrection power of Christ is already at work in you. That power lives in you. That power animates you. That power enables you to fulfill the commands that Paul gives you. In chapter 2, Paul says that we were once dead in sins and trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. We were disciples of Satan, followers of Satan, we were once objects of wrath. God was angry with us. And it was a righteous and just anger. But then Paul goes on to say, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness Toward us in Christ Jesus. You've got words like immeasurable and riches to describe this grace, this love, this mercy that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. Paul reaches for the highest possible language to show us the amazing blessings and benefits that Christ has won for us that we now enjoy. See, beneath the command for us to be kind to one another is God's prior act of kindness. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're to show kindness to others because God has already shown kindness to us. God's not calling on you to pour yourself out when you are empty. No, God is filling you with his kindness to overflowing. So now you can pour yourself out in kindness towards others. Our love for others flows out of the love already shown to us. That love flows into you, and now it's to flow out. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's not asking you to do anything that God's not enabling you to do through this kindness and this love and this grace and this mercy that have been bestowed upon you. The commands that Paul gives us to live in a certain way do not hang in midair. They are grounded in and founded upon the love and kindness and mercy and forgiveness we have already been shown. The whole Christian life is undergirded by God's kindness to us in Christ. That's the support system of the Christian life. That's the foundation the house rests upon. And that's why Paul's version of kindness is not mere niceness. It's not random acts of kindness. It's not and it cannot be a worldly virtue, a virtue we have in common with the world. It's a uniquely Christian virtue because it is shaped by the gospel. This is a kindness that is shaped and formed by the story, the true story of what Christ has done in history, dying for us and rising again and then pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us. Christian kindness is not mere morality. Non-Christians can do morality, at least after a fashion. They can have a kind of morality. That's not what this is. This transcends morality. This is Christian kindness. It is produced by this new life we have in Christ. This kindness is the product of the new life we have in Christ Jesus. It's something different. It's something the world cannot 
display. Now, I'll come back and talk more about that in a few minutes, but I wanted to deal with that first problem that we have with kindness, which is it just doesn't seem that distinctively Christian. It is, at least the kind of kindness that Paul is calling us to. It is uniquely Christian, and it's rooted in the kindness that God has shown us in Christ. But there's another problem we have with kindness. This is more of a, of a social or cultural problem in our moment, the moment in which we live. And it is this. Christian kindness has been weaponized against Christians. Christian kindness has been weaponized against us. Christian kindness has been weaponized against Christian truth. Our own virtue of Christian kindness is used against us by the world. And the result today is that a lot of Christians have become suspicious of kindness. They see kindness being used against the church to silence the church's witness. And so then to show kindness feels like compromise. And so Christians today, many very conservative and, and, and Christians who want to be faithful to the Bible are very suspicious of kindness. What do I mean when I say kindness has been weaponized? Well, it goes something like this. The world has basically grabbed hold of kindness and has used it to undermine Christian truth. The world will use kindness to subvert Christian truth. This is a play that is being run on the church again and again and again. You may have seen it. Again, kindness being weaponized against the truth. The world will say, hey, you know, we're all supposed to be kind. You Christians are supposed to be kind. And if you are kind, then you will avoid giving offense, especially to marginalized persons. And so you can't say anything that would be harsh or that would be uh, experienced as unloving or that would be disagreeable. And so we Christians find our own kindness used against us to silence the truth we ought to be speaking. The world uses a counterfeit version of kindness to silence us. Again, I, I, I would guess we've all seen this today. You cannot criticize people's life choices. If you criticize people's life choices, that's going to be regarded as unkind and unjudgmental. That's going to be regarded as judgmental. If you criticize someone for living a life of fornication or for having an abortion or even celebrating that abortion or for choosing an LGBTQ lifestyle, if you think it's bad for Heather to have two mommies, okay, all these kinds of things, if you criticize those kinds of things, you will be accused of being unkind. And because Christians want to be kind and we know we're supposed to be kind and we want to be known for being Many Christians will just shut up about those things. They think, well, better to be silent than to be thought unkind. Wouldn't it be better for my witness to just stay silent than to be thought unkind? And so a lot of Christians just shut up about those things. And so kindness ends up diluting Christian truth and, and, and the Christian witness to the truth. We need to understand what this is, what is really going on. This is actually a form of emotional Blackmail. I've talked about, you've probably heard me talk about this before. I've talked about this on many occasions, but I want to mention it here again. Someone will say, if I don't feel love, that must be because you are unloving. If I don't feel love, then you're unloving. The accusation stings because, again, we as Christians want to be known for our love. We want to be known as our kindness, for our kindness. But we have to make a basic distinction here. Not feeling love and not being loved are two different things. 
Those are two different things. Acts of kindness are not always viewed as such. Acts of kindness are not always received and experienced as such. A child who gets disciplined by his father might not feel love right in that moment. But Proverbs tells us that discipline is loving, and in fact, a refusal to discipline is unloving. If you don't discipline your child, you hate your child. So if you don't make your child occasionally feel unloved in the moment of discipline, you don't really love your child. That's kind of the paradox. Now, of course, your child will come to understand over time that this discipline is for his or her good. Because it is. If it's discipline that's done in love and it's done uh, the way the Bible says to do it, obviously discipline will be abused. But, that, but that's the point. In the moment, the loving act of discipline may not be felt or experienced as such, even though it is. In our culture today, people tend to equate their emotional pain with other people's failure to love them. The reason I am so miserable is because other people have not loved me well. The reason I am so miserable is because other people disagree with my chosen lifestyle. And that's why I'm miserable. But again, these things are not the same. A person can be loved and still be in pain. You can love a person and still disagree with that person's choices. A person's feelings are not the standard that determines whether or not love and kindness have been shown. The Word of God is always the standard. Here's a very concrete example of how I've seen this blackmail play out. You can go Google for headlines like this and you'll see articles like this have been written. I have seen Christians blamed for the high suicide rate among gay and transgender youth. And what's being communicated there is basically, look, if you Christians, you mean and unkind Christians, if you would just give your approval to these gay and transgender folks, if you would just celebrate their choices, they would not be in such pain and they could live happy lives. You are to blame for their emotional pain. Okay. You need to understand, that is emotional blackmail. A lot of Christians might fall for it, but it is emotional blackmail. We're going to see here in Ephesians, being kind does not just mean telling people what they want to hear. It does not mean always avoiding anything that might be offensive. Kindness can cut. True kindness can sting because kindness is inseparable from truth. That's something Paul makes very plain in this section in Ephesians. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, to pursue peace at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus. To pursue union or, or peace at the expense of truth is treason against Jesus. Think about the membership vows that the Williams took this morning. Those membership vows that all of you who have joined this church have taken. In those membership vows, and one of the questions, you commit yourself to pursue the purity and peace of the church. Never one at the expense of the other, never one to the exclusion of the other. It's always both. Peace and purity go together. Faithfulness requires love and truth because they are inseparable. There can be no peace where there is no purity. There can be no love where there is no truth. These things have to go together. So Christian kindness is different from worldly kindness in these two ways. It is rooted in the grace of the gospel and it is rooted in the truth of Scripture. It is not weak. It's not mere niceness. It is not a shapeless blob of feel-good emotion. Kindness has backbone. 
This kindness is solid. It's firm. It's built on this rock-solid foundation, and it reflects that foundation. This is kindness, kindness that is rooted in Christ. This kindness flows out of the grace and kindness that God has already shown us, and it operates according to God's truth. That's what we must understand. In Ephesians 4, I think that word kindness, when it shows up in 4.32, it's really Paul's catch-all term for love expressed in concrete, practical ways. It's Paul's catch-all term for love that is expressed in very practical and specific ways. It's interesting, in this whole section of Ephesians that we read this morning, Paul is contrasting the Christian way of life with what you might call the Gentile way of life or the pagan way of life or the non-Christian way of life. He's basically saying there are two paths, just as Scripture so often does. It lays out two paths before us, and that's what you have here. If you walk through the text, you can see it. Start back in verse 17. He says, do not walk as the Gentiles do, that is the pagans, the unbelievers, the non-Christians. Don't walk as the Gentiles do. Their minds are darkened by sin. You might be real impressed with the learning that you find out there in the world. But Paul says when it comes to ultimate matters, their minds are darkened by sin. When you reject God, you reject reality. And so the more consistently people reject God, the more out of touch and the more insane they become. I think that's something we're seeing playing out in the world all around us. The depraved and darkened mind of those who reject God. Paul says in verse 19, they are given over to sensuality. Or to lewdness. They're given over to sensuality and to greed and to the practice of impurity. That sounds all too familiar. Paul, it seems to be talking about our culture today just as much as the pagan culture that existed 2,000 years ago. Paul goes on, he says, that's not how you learned Christ. He says, in Christ you were taught to put off your old self and your former manner of life and to be renewed. That is to put on the new self recreated after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The gospel is this great restoration project, this great reclamation project. Jesus is reclaiming God's fallen creation. And he's putting God's creation back on track so it can move towards the end goal, the purpose that God had in view in the beginning when he created And so we are renewed, we are restored in the image and likeness of God, restored to true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, he says in verse 25, because you are new creatures in Christ, put away falsehood. Because you are a new creation, because in Christ Jesus you have a new life, put away falsehood. By falsehood here, I don't think Paul's just talking about particular lies, although that's part of it, particular acts of lying. I think what Paul is saying is that the non-Christian life itself is one big lie. The entire non-Christian life rests upon a lie. It's built upon a lie. The non-Christian's whole way of life is based on exchanging God's truth for a lie, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Because he's living as if the triune God did not exist and as if we did not owe this God thanks and worship. He lives as if God were not real, as if God were not there. And that is to live a lie. The non-Christian life is a life built upon lies. Instead, Paul goes on, he says, speak truth with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. And again, here, I think he's certainly saying we ought to be 
truthful and honest people in our day-to-day dealings with one another. But when he says to speak truth, I really think he's talking about speaking the truth. Speak the truth that comes from God's word to one another. Speak the truths of God's revelation of God's word to one another. Speak the gospel to one another. That's how we as members of one another will build up the body of Christ. He goes on. He says, when you're angry, do not sin in your anger. That is to say, make sure your anger is righteous anger. It's good and right to be angered by injustice we see in the world. There's a good and proper place for anger. Paul here wants us to control our anger. In fact, he gives a warning. Control your anger so the devil cannot use it as a foothold because anger, even when it's righteous, can still be a dangerous emotion because it can be expressed in all kinds of unrighteous ways. He goes on, he says, stop stealing, start working, and then share with anyone in need. That is, go from being takers to being makers to being givers. This is a complete reversal. They were stealing, they were lazy, they were taking from others. Paul says, stop taking, stop being a taker, be a maker, be a giver. God's grace transforms our work ethic. It transforms the way we work. Verse 29, do not let any corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Instead, he says, use your speech to build others up with grace. God's grace transforms our work ethic. God's grace transforms our speech patterns. We no longer speak in corrupt ways, in ways that corrupt other people. We're now going to speak grace. We're going to speak words that build others up, that conform others more and more to the truth. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Each one of us is a house or a temple for the Holy Spirit. And our sin grieves God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Make sure your heart and body and life are a fit dwelling place for Him. The Holy Spirit needs a holy place to reside. So live a holy life. Keep the Holy Spirit's house clean. That's what he's saying here. The way you use your mind and your heart and your body. Keep the Holy Spirit's house clean. That house is you. You're a house for the Holy Spirit. Make sure it's a clean house. Put away, Paul says, bitterness and wrath and malice and slander. All of these are actions that destroy community and rupture relationships. Instead, verse 32, this is really the verse we're most focused on today. Verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God forgave you. The Greek word for kindness is krestos. Krestos. Krestos sounds a lot like Christos, the Greek term for the Messiah, for the anointed one, the title given to Jesus. Krestos is kindness. Christos is Christ. And Christians throughout the centuries have noticed this is maybe perhaps something of a play on words. That Paul's using a word that sounds so similar to the title uh, given to Jesus. Because of Christ's Christos to each of us, we should show Christos to each other. That's how we become more Christos-like. The way to become Christos-like, Christ-like, is by showing Christos kindness. That's really what Paul is saying. Now, it should be obvious, too, that kindness is a communal virtue. God made us to live in community. Kindness builds and strengthens that community. Kindness makes no sense with no other people around. How could you be kind if you live in total isolation? Kindness has to do with relationships. It has to do with how we relate to one another. All of the things that that Paul indicates here uh, reinforce this fact. That we're made to live in 
relationship. We are made in the image of the triune God. We are made in the image of the communal God, the social God. And so you can say we were made in and for relationship. That's why solitary confinement is so wretched, so terrible. Because we were made to live in community. But some people isolate themselves. They exile themselves from they remove themselves from the bonds of fellowship. They, they uh, distance themselves from the community. You can't live out Christian kindness in that kind of way. It takes a community. There has to be a context, an environment where you can do this. It's interesting if you look at all of this in this passage. All of the things Paul says to put off are the very things that would most wreck and destroy community. And everything Paul tells us to put on contributes to the life and the well-being and the, the maturation, the building up of the community. To be kind is to, think, is to think in terms of community. To be a kind person is to be a communal person. It doesn't mean you lose all individuality, but it means that you see yourself as anchored and tied to a community. You're tethered to a body of people. To be kind means you pay attention to the needs of others. Kindness, you could say, is the opposite of selfishness. It means living as if other people mattered. Because they too, they matter a great deal. Kindness recognizes that the Christian life is not just me and Jesus. No, it is a corporate life. It's an ecclesial life. To be a Christian means you belong to a community, the local church. And in that local church, I have roles to play, obligations to fulfill, and duties to perform. And duty's not a bad word. We really do have duties to, to perform. We have obligations. We have roles. All these things are given to us in the life of the church. Kindness can be seen in service and sacrifice. Kindness can be seen in generosity and hospitality. Kindness can be seen in giving and forgiving. Kindness can be seen in bearing with others patiently and in bearing others' burdens. Kindness means you live with a kind of open-handed generosity in the whole of your life. You're ready to help and meet the needs of others. Paul goes on to describe it here. I think he's really unpacking what this kindness means in the rest of the verse. He describes it as being tender-hearted, or we could say compassionate. And then he further unpacks it in terms of forgiveness, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is truly amazing. Our sins have been forgiven. God in Christ on the cross secured our forgiveness. God forgives us fully and freely. He does not hold our sins against us. Forgiveness doesn't necessarily eliminate all earthly, temporal consequences of your sin. But forgiveness does mean that God will not hold your sins against you. God, has, God could press charges against you. God drops the charges against you in his eternal law court. And what's interesting is Paul sets forth God's forgiveness of our sins as the model for how we are to forgive one another. The ultimate act of kindness is forgiveness. Forgiveness heals and cleanses. Forgiveness restores and reconciles. Forgiveness is grace and mercy in action. 
People who refuse to forgive lapse into the very anger, wrath, malice, and bitterness Paul has already warned about and warned against. That is the old way of life we are to put off. In fact, it's interesting. I think you could even say the pivot from the old way of life to the new way of life is found in forgiving others. That's really how you show that you have pivoted from the old way of life to the new way of life. Do you forgive others as you have been forgiven? Forgiveness really is therapeutic. I'm not saying that's the main purpose of it, but it really is. Forgiveness is therapeutic. It's therapeutic for the one forgiven and for the one granting forgiveness. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. You have some ruptured relationship. You know there's some sin that stands between you and another person. Maybe they sin against you. Maybe you sin against them. But when one of you comes and confesses that, that sin and the other forgives it, it's like the air is clear. You can breathe again. You feel free. You feel like a great burden on your back has been dropped. And now you can run free again. You're know, carrying that, 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 that heavy weight, that, that heavy burden of this unconfessed, unforgiven sin. I think that's by design. Forgiveness keeps our relationships running smoothly. I, I would say this is not true in all cases. Certainly it's not true in all cases. But I would say in many cases it, it, it is true. Many of our so-called mental health problems that the world today is so full of, that our culture today is so full of, many of our so-called mental health problems, many of our psychological maladies stem from refusing to seek forgiveness or grant forgiveness. The refusal to seek and grant forgiveness closes up relationships. And it eats away at us on the inside. How many people have spent all kinds of money on therapy and pills and maybe abused alcohol or done who knows what else, all to try to deal with these nagging feelings of either unconfessed or unforgiven sin when really they could have had their issue resolved for free by simply confessing their sin or granting forgiveness to the one who sinned against them. Forgiveness does not change the past. Forgiveness does not change your past, but it will most certainly change your future. Forgive others when they have sinned against you. Seek the forgiveness of others when you have sinned against them. Christians are not people who never sin. In fact, the Christian faith is for sinners and only for sinners. Christians are not people who never sin, but we are people who know what to do with sin. We know to take our sin to the cross, to confess it to God and to our neighbor. We know to bring our sin out into the open where it can be slain by the sword of kindness and forgiveness. Forgive others as you have been forgiven. That is to say, treat your neighbor's sin the way you want God to treat your sin. That's kind of a scary thought, isn't it? But that's right there in the Lord's Prayer. Do with your neighbor's sin what you want God to do with your sin. Your sin against God has been nailed to the cross. Take your neighbor's sin against you and nail it to the cross as well and leave it there. Don't collect your neighbor's injustices against you the way some people collect stamps. Don't keep track. Don't keep score. Don't keep track of every little slight offense, every unkind word. Every time you're offended by somebody else, let it Go. One thing I've noticed, and I think you see this with the Pharisees in, in, uh, in the New Testament, you see it in other ways. One thing I've noticed 
that, that all of us are prone to do is when we sin, we tend to make mental excuses for ourselves and we will do all kinds of mental gymnastics to justify our own sin. We will excuse our sin, but we will never excuse our neighbor's sin. Okay, if I sin, it was a complicated situation and if you had been through what I've been through that day, you would have understood why I did what I did. Somebody sins against you. There is no possible excuse, no possible reason for what they did to me. They must, must be made to pay. We go easy on ourselves and we go hard on other people. Paul would tell us to reverse that because that is backwards. Be harder on your own sin than on your neighbors. The great old Puritan Richard Sibbs was right when he said, the best men are severe with themselves and tender towards others. Severe with themselves and tender towards others. Kindness is demonstrated when in humility and charity we seek and grant forgiveness as needed. Nothing keeps a community running more smoothly than keeping short accounts with one another. If there is a debt of sin, pay it by asking for forgiveness quickly. And if you are owed a debt because someone has sinned against you, grant forgiveness to the one who asks quickly. That's what Paul would have us do. Don't cancel the sinner, cancel the debts. You know, everybody today talks about cancel culture. And if you sin against the, the standards of the culture, then you will get canceled. It's totally different for Christians. The Christian kindness we are to show produces a different kind of cancel culture than what you find in the world. We don't cancel people. We cancel sins. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul tells us, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God is our kind Father. He has adopted us and made us his own children. God is kind, and we should imitate God's kindness, copy God's kindness. And one of the ways God shows kindness is through forgiveness. And so we should forgive as well. Imitate God in this way. And in this way, Paul is saying, your life can become an acceptable sacrifice to God. You will be giving yourself for others, pouring yourself out for others. When you live sacrificially because you're united to Christ who sacrificed himself for you, when you live sacrificially in union with him, God is pleased with you. So Paul says, copy God, imitate God, pattern your relationships after God's relationships in these ways. Now, I have said that all that Paul is saying here about the Christian life can really be summed up with that word kindness. So I'm going to close out this morning with a couple final considerations about kindness. It's obvious here, isn't it, that kindness is a key ingredient in building community, the kind of community God wants his church to be. You know, Americans have, have, have prided themselves in a kind of raw individualism. You know, Americans used to pride themselves in being rugged individualists. Uh, today I wouldn't say we're rugged any longer, but we're still individualists. We're just soft individuals. We used to be rugged individuals, now we're soft individuals. Uh, today our individualism is not so much about self-achievement as it is about self-expression. But raw individualism, whether, whether it's rugged individualism or soft individualism, stands in the way of the kind of community God wants us to have. Raw individualism is really just selfism. 
really. That kind of individualism is really just selfism. It is the worship of the self. But remember, the only time Jesus talked about the self, what did he say? He said, you must deny yourself. He called us to practice self-denial. You're either going to worship the self or you will deny the self. Those are the only two options. In order to be truly kind, you must practice self-denial. And you must not focus everything on this raw individualism. You must throw yourself into the life of the community. Kindness, kindness which seeks to be a blessing to others, should characterize the culture of God's people. The church should be marked out as a community of kindness. This kind of kindness. Living as a Christian means one another and one another. I know this butchers the English language, to put it this way. But the New Testament constantly gives us these one another in commands so we can turn one another into a verb. We're to one another, one another. We're to love one another, pray for one another, serve one another. We're to be kind to one another. And again, you can only one another, one another, if you're in a community. The Christian life is a life lived in relationship. You can't do these things in isolation. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. I'm afraid a lot of English translations obscure this. You know, when you read the Bible in English, you'll come across you, that second person pronoun. And you can't tell just by looking, is it singular or plural? This is why I've often contended that, that, that only Southerners should be allowed to make English Bible translations. Only Southerners, because Southerners have that incredibly useful word, y'all. So we know, you're not just talking about you, singular, we're talking about y'all, you all, you, plural. Well, you may not notice this, but all throughout Ephesians 4 and 5, Paul again and again and again, when he says you, he's talking about y'all. Verse 20, how y'all learned Christ. Verse 21, y'all have heard Christ and been taught by him. Verse 21 and uh, 22 and 23, y'all put off the old man and be renewed. Verse 24, y'all put on the new man. Verse 26, y'all be angry without sin. Verse 30, y'all were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Verse 32, y'all be kind. Chapter 5, verse 1, y'all imitate God. We've got to capture how communal and social and relational and ecclesial the Christian life is. Ecclesial, that's the word for church. It's a churchly life. The Christian is a churchman. You know, we don't use that kind of language anymore. We don't talk about churchmen anymore or church women or church children anymore. It's kind of old-fashioned language. But we need to recover it because it's right. It matters. The church is the context in which the Christian life is shaped and lived out. The Christian life is lived out in relationship. And it's lived out in relationship with people whose lives can be messy, who can have annoying idiosyncrasies, who can be difficult, who can be irritating, people who sin. But God wants you around just those kinds of people because that's how you grow, that's how you learn to practice these things. It is easy to talk about love in an abstract way. Love for humanity is one thing, love for your next door neighbor is something else. It's like Linus in the Peanuts cartoon, he used to say, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. There's a Christian version of that. I love Christianity. It's Christians I can't stand. There's a lot of people who look at it that way. That's not right. It's easy to love our idea of the church. 
or our dream of the community, what it could and should be in our own minds, but we're actually called in love, the flesh and blood Christian next to you. That's who we're called to love, actual people. See, the Apostle Paul won't, get us, won't let us get away with these kinds of abstractions. If Paul were with us today at Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Birmingham, you know what he would say to us? You know what the Apostle Paul would say to us on November 6, 2022 in Birmingham, Alabama? You know what he would say? He would say, y'all be kind to one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Yeah.